This is Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I'm your host, AJ Fraser, and in this series, we explore and expand on what it takes to create meaningful and transformative education. I won't spend much time in this introduction setting up what our guest has to say because I feel like she represents herself and her teaching philosophy quite well and at length in this episode. What I will say is that it's always a pleasure to speak with faculty with the passion and fire our guest does. The best part of working at a university is seeing students confronted with a different way of thinking and doing when they're prepared and presented with subversive educational strategies and begin to reimagine how they can talk about and engage with the wider world they're about to enter. Today I speak with Kate Krug, Chair of the Department of Illinois Political and Social Studies and Assistant Professor at Cape Breton University. Among the many terms and titles Kate used to describe herself, she can now add that she is a recipient of the Association of Atlantic Universities Distinguished Teaching Award. An honor that recognizes Kate's dedication to teaching excellence and her students' success and well-being. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, my name is Kate Krug. I am um, an assistant professor in sociology uh, at Cape Breton University. I am also the chair of the Ilnu Political and Social Studies Department. And um, um, I have been teaching at Cape Breton University since 2001. I am, um, I'm also an activist. I'm, I'm a queer activist. I am, um, and I've been doing that since pretty much for about the same length of time. Um, I came out, um, when I just before I started university, and um, and so I've been actively involved in um, lesbian, gay, and queer organizations all the way through my career. Um, do a lot of that here. So I'm a teaching academic. I'm an activist. Um, some people call me Kate. Some people call me Uncle Kate. Um, there's a couple of people in Australia who call me Grandma. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't know what else to say other than um, I love what I do. I I really, I may have kind of fallen into teaching and being a teaching academic as, as a kind of an accidental path, uh, but it is the place that brings me great joy. And I, I love, so I love what I do. So speaking on joy and what um, what joy can look like in the academic environment today, uh, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the pedagogy of play. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, what is the pedagogy of play? And what does that mean in the post-secondary context specifically? Okay, it's, um, well, it's a it's a framework that I kind of invented, um, making as a, and a way of articulating um, a philosophy of teaching and learning that starts from the principles of an interaction pattern that in sociology and other kinds of things we call play. And um, it's not it's not just a series of activities. It's a philosophy, it's it's an actual philosophy philosophy of teaching grounded in the idea that as with play, 
all of the actors in a given context, in a given, given social interaction, have some kind of interest in or a, a ability to make, uh, to define the context. Um, the distinction between play and game is, is an important one, I think, here. And play is open-ended. It's not necessarily time-dependent. It's defined. The rules, the roles, the expectations are defined by the participants in play, whereas game um, is outcome-dependent, has a set of, of stable rules and roles that are imposed before the participants come to the activity. So it's defined outside of that context. The, the rules and roles are all relatively stable. They can, you can tweak them a little bit inside. But if you, if you think about the, the kinds of interaction patterns in the way kids play house, and the same, the same group of participants can take very different roles in any performance of, the, of a playing house. Whereas if you've, got, um, if you've got a bunch of folks on a hockey team, everybody's got a position and everybody knows what their position is. You've got a little bit of flexibility there, but, um, you know, um, Ronnie Huckstall notwithstanding, the goalie is actually supposed to stay inside a particular kind of portion of the ice and not go charging folks at the blue line and that sort of thing. Um, whereas, you know, the, people's movement around and, and people's interaction patterns or the, the participants' interaction patterns in game are, uh, are framed by the structure of the game itself in ways that in play you don't have that. So I took the principles of this kind of interaction pattern and, um, and used those principles to inform how I approach teaching and learning in the university context. What is the faculty's role in regards to these dynamics? Have to, I'm 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 the course director. I'm responsible for making sure that there's a curriculum and 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 designing the curriculum and designing the assessment strategies and 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 building the frameworks for all of this stuff. So instead of coming to the first class with everything on the course course outline as a fait accompli, and here it is, and here's our contract, and here's what we're going to do. What I do in the in this context is I bring. Um, I kind of bring a bag of tools and say, okay, here are the things that are really important to me about the course. Here are the kinds of things that I need us to do. I need you to do the readings. I need you to come to class and participate. I need, I need this kind of stuff from you for this course. I need us to have a way for you to demonstrate that you have learned some of this stuff, that you demonstrate that you've done the readings and understood them and all of this kind of stuff. So I come to the first class and say, here are the kinds of things that I would like us to be, that I need us, need us to do and, and the assessment, the outcome sort of assessment strategy that I need us to have. What I want from you is, and here are some of the ranges for them. I'm not going to have this be a 100% participation grade. I, mean, I wouldn't be able to get away with that bureaucratically. Um, so I bring um, a, a loose framework, a place to start, because it's terrifying enough for my students, especially my first-year students who are coming from high school, 
and uh, when when I've got first year students coming from high school and, and they come into this context and I say, okay, we are now going to negotiate the assessment strategy. And they're like, duh, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, no, no worries, no problems. I'm not going to, you know, first of all, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. This is a whole other universe. You are now in, you are now in Kate's world. And Kate's world is very differently shaped and sized and, and colored. Um, we are not pink and blue here. We are pink and blue and purple and yellow and green. Um, we are the whole rainbow, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Doesn't get any queerer than that. Um, and and so we start as a collectivity. I mean, the first thing I do with them is take them out of rows and put them in a circle, for heaven's sakes. I mean, I I just I do what I can to disrupt whatever are their expectations of how this is going to be and and why I am not going to be a talking head disseminating information, that this is going to be something we do together. Hi, folks. From October 28th to the 29th, Cape Breton University will host its first anti-poverty conference, Communities Building Hope, Action Agenda to Reduce Poverty on Cape Breton Island. This year for the inaugural lecture celebrating the late Margaret Deckman, we have keynote speaker, Dr. Gaynor Watson-Creed. You can attend in person or online. Go to cbubuildinghope.ca for more details. Now back to our conversation. One of the courses I teach is um, classical and contemporary sociological theory. And I love theory. I'm a theory head. Theory makes me happy. It terrifies my undergraduates. And I can go in thinking, okay, let's play theory as much as I want. And and they're all going to just sort of blink and look at me like I am purple and with like lime green stripes, right? I am the weirdest thing they have ever seen. You can't play theory, Kate. This is really serious stuff. So I can't, I, but I come to, I mean, I, I, for me, it's like I'm a fish and theory is the water I swim through. And you can't, you can't, you can't get a fish to teach a mammal how to breathe water. They just can't do it. Because they're like, well, you just use your gills, right? And the mammal's like, I don't have gills, dude. And and my students are like, yeah, but these are all dead white guys who are supposed to be really important. And what do you mean you don't care if I memorize when Marx lived? It's like, I don't care. I care more about your... So it gave me an opportunity to shift my focus. So, um, and that's... And that's the thing that I found in Hooks. I mean, she says teaching is a performative act. And it's in so it's in the doing. And 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 for me, learning is also a performative act. It's also in the doing. And we um the more we put barriers in front of students where um One of the things that makes me absolutely crazy is the folks who do the end-of-term avalanche approach to work time management. It's like, oh, please, please don't do that. Because 
that means that you're treating the work for the course as a commodity and not as a process, which is one of the other elements of um, that I build into the my pedagogy. Because for me, I want all of the assessment tools to double as teaching tools. Um, one of the things I have found teaching undergraduates, I did a lot of writing courses as an undergraduate, um, simply largely because um, because I started at the University of Waterloo in a spring term. I didn't get into the right kind of advising stuff, so I kind of made things up for myself as I went along. And um, and I'm a big fan of reading and writing. So I took a lot of lit courses, as my, almost all my electives were lit courses. Um, science fiction and fantasy, Arthurian legend, uh, forms of fantasy, um, all of that kind of stuff, and um, and a couple of a couple of extra philosophy courses, um, and in that I I one of the things I found when I started trying to um, teaching in the in the university context was that my students would approach the paper their their writing papers as if. It is some kind of, of thing that you really don't want to do. So you put it off till the last minute and you stay up until four o'clock in the morning and you produce the paper, which is actually really a good first draft or a mediocre first draft or a really stellar first draft. But it's almost always a first draft or second draft at best. And... um so one of the things that I do is I build in to that kind of assignment the possibility of revising and resubmitting. And, um, and I, I borrowed um, and also so that in order and in order to do that as, as part of the um, this philosophy of teaching that that negotiates just about everything. I also realized that my students, you know how you go around the room and ask people why, what it is that inclined them to take this course? And quite frequently, and I don't know if this is anybody else's experience, but my experience teaching sociology is that quite frequently the answer that I got to why did you take sociology of the family was because it fit my timetable. And and the students for whom it fits their timetable probably want to pass the course. They, some of them may want to pass, be, do, do really, really well. So I started, um, I looked at how can I devise an assessment strategy that offers people the opportunity to do as much or as little work for the course as they want. As long as they're covering, as long as they've engaged with the whole thing, then why? And and I've got some kind of I've got some kind of measure of that going along. So I um, I started devising contract grading schemes as part of this this overarching framework that um, gives us the possibility of negotiating and responding to who to to where my students are 
and not just where I am. And um, the contract, the grading contracts that I tend to produce for my students um, work work as follows. So there's a baseline that everybody's expected to do. And the baseline is, um, I, I call it course engagement. And um, and the things that are included in course engagement are um, participation, class participation. Um, I usually have, um, usually break the class down into lead reader groups. So that lead, lead reader groups are responsible for um, taking the lead on participation in particular weeks. So they would be responsible for um having having done the reading and posted something to indicate that they've done the reading or posted some kind of question or brought a question to class depending on how how folks want to how how we're working this out whether um if it's if it's all online then I want them to post something and respond to somebody else's post and um and they have to do a certain number of those for the for the for the duration of the course um in a three credit course, we've you've got twelve weeks. I usually break it down into reader lead reader groups so that they're doing at least three in the in in the in the run of that. And um, I usually also have their lead readers doing some kind of um, one pager response or a critical critical reflection on the reading. So they've got a, something to write, something to say, and 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 being there. The, the being part of the con the class conversation, however that works out, and in that that means if you um, if you have to miss a class, you need to let me know that you've that that you missed the class, and and it means folks can't just ghost um, can't just ghost the course and still wind up with a pass because they did the other stuff. It's it's a package deal, and. <clears throat> and that package will usually get them about a C plus, because I figure that's you know that's a reasonable thing. I want them to have more than just a passing grade, and a C plus is like a sixty eight, and that I think is reasonable as um as a first step. And the the lead um, um the grading contract is cumulative, so you cannot achieve any of the upper levels if you haven't achieved the baseline. You cannot. You cannot, so there's, so then what we do is I bring in um, a, an assortment of assignments and assignment styles and say, okay, here are the kinds of things that I think would work for the B plus level. Here are the kinds of things that I think would work for the A minus level. Here are the kinds of things that I think would work for the A level. Um, and, and I explain to them that the difference between these levels isn't just about the, the there are different kinds of projects or different kinds of things, and the difference between a B and an A is that um, a, the B level, the C plus level stuff is competence. Are you competent in the material? The B level stuff is can you can you do some kind of descriptive analysis? Can you have you at least got this to the level of description? A is um, a little more, you need more depth. So you need a little more depth for the B than the C. And and the A level is, I mean, it's a standard rubric that, that folks use. And the A level is about um, moving, including that kind of descriptive analysis, but then also going a little deeper and 
um, doing an analysis that asks questions like how, not just what, but how. And um, so I explain to them how that stuff works out. And we collectively build a set of, build a grading, um, a, a set of things that, that become the expectations, that become the grading contract. And so at any point, students can choose when they're done. Um, and, and sometimes it means that, and, and, and in that, with the, ex with the exception of the, the physical participation, everything that they submit then doesn't get graded on it. So they're not getting a mark for each thing. Um, there are three options. You can get either an acceptable, which just means that, and sometimes I will say like mostly acceptable or marginally acceptable. Um, you might want to revise and resubmit this, but I'm not going to require it, right? Um, <clears throat> um, or revise and resubmit is the other option, which means it's not acceptable. But I don't like words like fail or not acceptable. I prefer revise and resubmit. I'm not, you haven't made the bar yet. I want you to take another run at this. Um, and, and there's always feedback in there about what are the kinds of things that I need you to do differently, that I that need, you, need you to rethink here. Um, the third possibility is outstanding. So, and one of the reasons that I need the outstanding is that there is nothing in my grading contract that, um, that leads you to an A+. And the thing that leads you to an A+, is that you have achieved outstanding at every level. And that to me is what an A plus is. So if you want, if that's where you're, I mean, and you can revise and resubmit anything. I mean, you don't, you don't have to, yeah, just about anything, even if it's acceptable but you have an idea you'd really like to go for an outstanding on this, well, you can come and talk to me about what you did and I can tell you what what you did. And, and if you have a brilliant idea, then you can run with it or do something different. Um, yeah. Do you, I mean, do, does that remain within the confines of the the academic term? You know, I, you're, you're trying to finish things up and, and so you're you're doing, you're getting students to submit uh, their assignments throughout the term so that they can have the opportunity to revise and resubmit, yeah. you know, before the end of term. Is this the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that I really, really love about Moodle and trust me, I don't say a whole lot of really good things about Moodle. Um, but one of the things that I really love is that with Moodle, I can set a deadline and I can set and, and I can, and, and I can set the door closes. And um, requiring people to submit stuff onto Moodle means that um, it helps me avoid the end-of-term avalanche, which is completely counterproductive in terms of with this kind of, within this kind of framework. So I'm really clear with my students that the deadlines that I, I, I once upon a time, I did it without deadlines, and that was a nightmare and a disaster because... Um, and again, I found out that I, that they needed to have the pressure of the deadline 
to start the process. So when they submit something, then they have um, then they have usually seven days to revise and resubmit. And again, the other thing I can do in Moodle is if something happens and somebody needs more time, I can easily open it up for them and, and do that. But the idea is that they're producing work as we go along, unless there's something that they need or want to do that needs more time. Um, I taught a 4,000 level seminar in, um, nope, I'm sorry, it was a 3,000 level course. It was um, um social and cultural constructions of gender course. And um, it was the, um, this was particularly on genders and identities. And I had, um, I was worried, I, there was no textbook for the course, but there was a series of readings. They were all posted on, they were all posted on Moodle. And I had, um, I had the straight up required readings. I had recommended readings and I had supplemental readings. So all of these were, were posted on Moodle. And when we started negotiating the grading contract, one of my students said, is there any way that we can, um, she said, I, I don't want to produce papers. I'm not, I'm, I'm not good at creative kinds of assignments. Um, what if we devise um, a, a grading contract so that um, there can be some kind of reading intensive option for the baseline? I said, okay, well, let's think about that. So um, we negotiated a reading intensive option, which meant that the, it, it moved the baseline from a C plus up to a B plus. Um, and the, the reading intensive folks did all of the readings every week, responded to all of the readings every week somehow or another, brought something from all. So they, they were doing, um, they were having a heavier workload on a weekly basis, especially with respect to the readings. Um, but they didn't have to produce any of these other, some of these other papers to achieve the B+. So that, and that's the kind of flexibility that um, a pedagogic framework that starts that 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 isn't dedicated to the to the course outline, right? Doesn't use the course outline as the the end, but it uses it as the beginning. And 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 opens the space to this kind to respond to those kinds of things. So I've also had students who said to me, "Look, Kate, I need to not have to produce another paper. I was I, this happened just the other day." Um, and a student who was doing a creative project as part of the, the theory course. And she's, what she was doing was um, um, writing a piece of poetry in response to a couple of the theorists. And um, the, the assignment itself includes a, a part where you unpack how it is that this does this bridging stuff. And she said, Kate, can I do that orally instead of in writing? I'm I'm working on my I'm working my honors thesis. I've just finished a 66-page document that I've revised and and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm so done writing. And I said, sure, okay, I absolutely. Um, if you're willing to do it, sort of as a as a dialogue with me, 
and um, I can ask you questions about it, and you can tell me more about it in the same way that 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 I would do that. So it's for me the oral presentation builds in the possibility of revising and resubmitting on the spot, because then I can ask the question and get and get the response. So it's um, and I've done that with a number. I, I've I've used oral um, oral exams or an oral version. Um, on more than one occasion over the course of my uh, my career here at CBU, especially when dealing with um, students who have needs around um, not having to produce an, an actual a, a physical text, um, but who have um, who have a, um, are, are much better at at articulating this stuff um, verbally. So I have a that mm. that leads to a couple of questions. There's lots of stuff there. Um, so for one thing, this does sound like it adds a significant amount of labor on your part, um, and and this is just the impression I'm getting. But I'm curious from your perspective, do you think it's more laborious, um, and do you think that this is a let's say a scalable and repeatable model? Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Again, it's um, it is it it is perhaps a little bit more laborious. Although for me, it's a labor of love. Um, it's um, and I don't think so. I, don't, I mean, in the same, it, it takes about the same amount of time and energy to generate the um, the criteria for um, particular kinds of tests. Right, uh, and then you use the test again. You've got um. I mean, that's why people pay people to generate things like test banks, right? Um, I find that kind of stuff mind-numbingly laborious. I mean, putting together a a multiple choice or true false multiple choice test is incredibly time-consuming. Yeah, they take they 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 mark in a in a minute especially if you have a program that can market for you. Um, but generating the test is also incredibly time-consuming, even if you're just using cut and paste to work to, to get, a, a, get, the, get the material from test bank A into um, exam B. Um, and I have, I have developed a collection of possibilities of assignments that I've used in various courses over the years. So I've got my own little bag of tricks that I use in various contexts. Like now I'm going to include, and, and, and it grows as I respond to people's needs. So um, now for my, my 3000 level courses um, that have that kind of long reading list, I'm just going to include a reading intensive option in case that's something that works for folks, right? Um, so every time I'm faced with a situation that means I have to create something new, it just goes into my toolkit. There, there was another in our in our conversations pre-interview. Uh, you had mentioned about a screening of a film, mm. and how that in itself was a, a negotiation. Right. I have. Um, we've we've done some sort of redefinition on the fly um, when something comes up. Um, Again, it was an identities, a 4,000 level seminar on identities and um, colonization road was being screened 
um, at a local theater. And, um, and so I said to them, I think it would be a really useful thing. What do you think? Can we take this piece out of our, um, out of our, out of our course outline for, for that week and replace it with a conversation about, um, identities, indigeneity and, and spin from colonization road and use that as our, and use that as our piece there. And they were all like, yeah, great. Um, that kind of, a kind of flexibility and ability to um, respond to what I would call the teachable moment. That's um, that's part of that's that's one of the best parts about a pedagogy of play, because the teachable moment is is I mean it's so rich. It's so it's so fabulous to be able to um, come into a classroom and say so how's everybody doing what's going on i had um i had students talking at one point about um um last year i was teaching um classical uh, no i was teaching contemporary issues in education and we went into lockdown and suddenly we were online and we were a seminar online where we'd been sitting around in a circle before and um, and things were happening, and things were happening in the world, um, and we were able to bring the conversation about, oh my goodness, now we're all learning online. How is what are the implications for that for us for our conversations about contemporary issues in education? How does that fit into what we're talking about here? So those that that kind of stuff. I mean, it's not. It's not that the pedagogy of play is the only kind of philosophy of teaching that can build on the the teachable moment. Um, I do think that having the kind of using that kind of framework for me always inclines me to say, okay, what what can we do today? What can we do where we are? And um, in that. That makes my teaching always fresh, for me anyway. I mean, there's nothing worse than um, somebody who's clearly doing, that, at least to me. I mean, I'm 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 not quite um, I'm not quite as ADHD as some of the folks in my circle, squirrel. Uh, but I am. I mean, I do need something new. I need something different even though I can eat the same thing for a week. After two weeks, I'm done with that, and I need to move on to something else for a while. Um, so I'm, I, I, I kind of have both of these things in my, in, in my wheelhouse. I mean, it's nice to have the familiar. It's nice to have the familiarity of, of, um, of some kind of elements of the context. It's why we develop sort of teaching um, patterns and paths but it's also nice to be able to do something a little different every once in a while don't miss out on the community's building hope action agenda to reduce poverty in cape breton island conference it's happening october 28th to the 29th at cape breton university you can attend both in person or online we have Dr. Gaynor Watson Creed 
speaking at the inaugural Margaret Deckman Lecture. Go to cbubuildinghope.ca for more information, a full schedule. Now back to our episode. In, in our conversation, one of the things I'm struck by, you've been talking about all the different classes that you've brought this approach to, and they're all different levels. We've, we've talked about 1,000-level courses, 2,000, 3,000. Um, and I, I think originally I was going to ask, does this methodology, can this methodology apply to a 1,000-level course? But obviously, you've demonstrated. I'm, I'm now curious how it might be different between uh, those different levels of, of course and, and a maybe a more mature um, student and how they negotiate with you as a faculty member and with their peers versus a student who's just entering their academic career. My experience of teaching 1,000 level course, introductory level, like the 1,000 level course is that this is the place to not completely fracture their expectations. You need to work a little bit inside what they've got going. And, and it also depends on the number of students that you're dealing with. I have the very great good fortune to teach here at CBU where I have relatively small class sizes. And um, even when I was teaching intro courses with 50 and 60 students, that was the, that was the context in which I, um, I, I don't use multiple choice exams. I use, I use other kinds of, I use other kinds of, of uh, assessment tools, even though it would certainly be time saving, the multiple choice exam doesn't offer me. I don't. It doesn't. It doesn't do what I need it to do. I doesn't give my. It doesn't. Uh, um. It, and my students study for it in a way that they jam everything into their short term memory. They write the exam and then it's gone, and it never comes back. <laughs> And I know this because I have the same students in upper level courses and say, well, remember when we talked about the sociological imagination in intro? And I know you remember that because you were there and it was on the test. They're like, see, right, males who? Um, I'm like, sociological imagination, what? It's like, yeah, okay. Um, the, 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 the kind of negotiation is a little different at the 1,000 level. I'm going to give them fewer options because too many options is overwhelming. Um, us like standing in front of a vending machine with a buck and a half and you've got like rows and rows of choices and, but I like that and I like that and I like that. At least I don't like that at all. So I can eliminate that, but you, there, you can have too many choices when you, when you start out in a new thing and, uh, and too many choices can be, can be terrifying and daunting and a barrier to even making good choices. Because then you just sort of flail around and push a button, and um, so with uh, with the one thousand level courses, what I have done is um, not necessarily negotiated the whole thing, but offered. I've I've borrowed. I've 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 I've, I've taken a different tack. So instead of um, a midterm and 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 that kind of um, and that kind of stuff with multiple choice and maybe short answer. Um, I will um, offer them a number of um, critical thinking. I will offer them the possibility of submitting um, concept explanations 
which is what I would use on a short answer test. Um, and but get but say okay, you need to do X number of concept explanations, and I might not might not contract grade it. Uh, what I would probably do at the one thousand level instead of contract grading is say okay, you have to you have to have this number of concept ex explanations, and you and I'll mark them out of five or ten, um, and and um. You can revise and resubmit, um, but the um, the point of the point of them is you have to not just give me the definition of the concept. That's the lowest. That's 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 worth maybe one mark because you can cut and paste the definition out of anywhere. Then there's the explanation where you put it into the context, and that's the part that really is. That's the part I want to see. That's the part. Do you understand this well enough to explain it? So that's the kind of assessment strategy that I tend to use with the 1,000 levels. So they're, they're little pieces that can come in through the course. So they're, they, they can do it on a weekly basis. They can do it every two weeks. You know, they can do one of these this week. They can do critical thinking questions. And, and we generate, um, when I'm using critical thinking questions as an assessment tool, I try really hard to get my students, to, to get the class, students in the class to generate the question or at least give me the terrain for the question for that week because it, it comes out of our conversa our class conversations about this stuff. So, um, and the class conversations are then informed by whatever else is going on in the world. So, um, <clears throat> if I had been teaching intro this year, um, I would have been, well, and, and, and when I was, when I can't remember which course it was. Oh, it was the theory course. Um, a couple of times we were using contemporary ex issues, like breaking issues like um, treaty, treaty rights and, and, the, and that kind of stuff. And, and using that as the critical thinking question and saying, okay, read this read this situation or make sense of this situation using this theoretical frame or that theoretical frame. And that, um, so that kind of stuff is, um, is that, but the, at the intro level, I try to focus them on really short questions and on uh, concept explanations. That's the stuff that, or, or, or framework explanations so that, um, the the outcome for intro is to give people a foundation in the um in the in the language or the in in the discourse of the discipline in the um in the key concepts and to understand how these concepts while they might be used whether while they're words that might show up in everyday conversation have a particular kind of meaning inside the discipline so that um a role for example, has a particular meaning inside sociology. A role set is a particular kind of thing, where it's not it's it's not quite the same as it is in theater, although there are some th you know. But it, those are the kinds of things that that then um, again it's it's about framing. It's about getting making sure that the assessment strategy is commensurate with people's ability levels. And at the same, because I'm, I'm not teaching them how to write, so I don't want them to be writing me essays in intro. 
because that's just cruel, at least from my point of view, um, because if, to both of us, because I, I don't have the expertise or the time and energy to give those essays back to them and say, okay, here are the things about sentence structure that you need to do differently. Here are the things about um, about grammar that you need to do differently. And here are the things about content that you need to do differently. I'm way better at the content stuff and more, you know, the, the logic of the argument is flawed and here's how it's flawed and here's how you can make that be, be different. Um, but I can, uh, my prime focus in intro is learn the language of the discipline, know how to use these concepts, know what they mean and have some kind of familiarity with the theoretical frames and the and some elements of the methodology. Know a little bit about it's kind of like how to talk like a sociologist. And and so that's the stuff that I'm given that that's for me the outcome. How do I then build assessment strategies that tell me that they can talk like a sociologist? What are some of the challenges you've encountered implementing the pedagogy play in your courses? I would say that there were there have been sort of two levels of stumbling blocks, and one of them was one of them is um, getting the students on board to getting the students to believe me, right? To trust me, because um, often, all too often, they look at me and they say, "We get to the end of the course, and they say, Kate, I I don't know.'" I don't know what grade I'm going to get for the course. And I say, well, you should know what grade you're going to get to the, for the course because you know what you've, what you've submitted and what's been acceptable. And even even at the end of a, at the end of the course, oftentimes they're like, wow, I didn't I didn't really believe that you I didn't really think that it would happen that way. And I'm like, well, I've been telling you that all along. Why? And and it's it's um, a lot of times it's a it's that they don't they don't necessarily because it's so outside of their expectation their the the normative frame it's it's so far outside of how they expect assessment strategies will work that it's it's not until they get to the other end and they get the grade that they that 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 the contract says they're going to get they're like wow she didn't lie. They, they, it's like they're always waiting. It's, it's like they're waiting for me to bait and switch, right? It's, it's like they're, they're waiting for the other boot to drop, even though I've promised them that there's no other boot to drop. Um, and the other thing is it's a radically different kind of way to do teaching and learning. And I started doing some of this stuff Back in, uh, well, I I got um, I started teaching at CBU on a um, on a one year contract, and then I got another one year contract, and then I got a tenure track position. So once I got once I moved from the contract to the tenure track, I started being a little more confident in my ability to. Um, had a little more job security and a little more confident in my in my position here, so I was a little more willing to take risks. Um, I didn't start doing so. I would I I started by adding in more um more creative assignments and more flexibility. I didn't even 
try to build contract grading into my syllabus until I hit tenure. Cause, and, and I didn't submit it as part of a new course proposal until about a week ago. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in part because I, um, well, the one of the labor-intensive parts of it is convincing my colleagues that it is reasonable and it is um, that it that, that especially if um, if you're working within a framework where someone is saying, "Well, how do we know that we've got quality control across this discipline or across this stuff when we've got this?" radical queer over here who's doing all of this stuff that doesn't make any sense to us and um and 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 if you don't i mean when you're when you're when you're using very different kinds of assessment strategies even though i mean i can i can give you chapter and verse on why this is the right tool for this why this is the right strategy for this kind of assessment and and how it works and how there is clearly here's the rubric that I'm working from. Here's the here's the rationale. Here's the justification. This is what students have to do in order to get, get to get this. And 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 it's you know it's it's fair. It's equitable. It's it's stable. Even though even though I talk about all of the flexibility in this, there are these stable elements. In your opinion, what further research or scholarship needs to be done? Um, to flesh out uh, pedagogy of play even more? I would really like to see if, it, I would like to see the extent to which it can move outside of the social sciences or the humanities. Because I can, I mean, I really see how it can work there. Um, I would love to have a conversation with um, a friend and colleague of mine who who teaches physics. Because I know that, I mean, this is so in in in, in his wheelhouse. Um, in terms of, I know he does a whole bunch of creative stuff. I know he's really um, dedicated to um, the kinds of of thinking outside the box that this kind of pedagogy does. Um, I'm not sure the last the last thing I wrote about this. The last time I had a chance to really focus on this, um, I did a I did a piece called The Art of Surrender. And, and I'm, I think that's the direction that I want to keep moving because um, I see this as, um, as an, an, um, an extension of the ideas that I, that I got from Bell Hooks teaching to transgress. Um, I think that there is something in that, that there's something this pedagogy does that d completely disrupts the hierarchical kinds of frameworks that we have come to rely on so heavily. And, um, and things like surrender get a bad name, right? Uh, things like vulnerability get a bad name. Um, however, it's in risking vulnerability that we get some of the most amazing rewards. And it's in, 
it's that I think that the pedagogy of play offers me an opportunity to come into the classroom as who I am all the time, every day, without having um, this kind of um, and 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 performing teaching and learning as as Kate as this person who's kind of weird and kind of wonderful and kind of fabulous in some respects and also puts her pants on one leg at a time just like everybody else um, and also is flawed and also has stuff. Um, I had occasion to um, and, 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 and that being a whole person in the classroom means that my students get to be whole people and and I model for them what it looks like to be a healthy whole individual or as healthy as I can manage whole individual I was um I was in the middle of my theory class a couple of years ago one of the first classes of the term because it was the 13th of September and I know it was the 13th of September because about it's a 70 was a 75 minute class and we were about 45 minutes in and all of a sudden I started crying like tears just started rolling down my face and my students are looking at me and freaking out because it's like the second week of class and the prof is crying and we don't know what to do and I looked at them and said okay I'm really sorry um it seems that today is September the 13th September the 13th was my stepmother's birthday um, we lost my stepmother to ovarian cancer a couple of years ago. And grief is like that. It sneaks up on you when you least expect it. So apparently I am now dealing with that grief. Um, I need to be done for today because this is clearly going to take, is taking priority for me. And um, I said, I'll see you guys on Thursday. And ended the class. And I was, I was walking back across the back to my office across the quad when my students um, came up to me and said, Kate, thank you. It's so amazing that you were willing to just let us know what was going on in the moment. He said, I deal with social anxiety stuff. And I don't know how you did that. Um, but it means that I know I can trust you to understand if I need to get up and leave because something is going on for me that I, I can't articulate to everybody in that moment. But I get that 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 will be okay, right? And um, I think there's a thing about authenticity that play has that game doesn't. Game gives me a role. Play lets me build one. Um, play lets me be who I am and where I am when I'm there. Um, and and that's that's the difference between university education and some kind of training to do a thing. I'm not just teaching people stuff. I'm offering people the opportunity to learn stuff about themselves and learn how to be different and how to make the world different. Um, which brings me back to being an activist, right? 
I mean, that's also a part of the reason that I love the pedagogy of play because it gives me a framework for building, um, building my students, giving them the kinds of tools to take the stuff that we learn and do things differently in the world because they're agents and they get, and they get that sense of, of agency and that reward for being proactive and not just reactive. So those are kinds of, yeah, <laughs> that's the big picture. Well, Kate, thanks so much. Uh, I appreciate you coming and talking about, uh, this very different w approach to teaching and learning. And I want to thank you for striving for excellence um, at CBU and, and kind of pushing for uh, change and growth. So thank you very much. My pleasure. I love to talk about teaching. Okay, we'll talk soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Beyond the Class, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Teaching and Learning at Cape Breton University. I want to thank Kate for sharing with us. Congratulations on your much-deserved award. Thanks to the Center for Teaching and Learning team, Nicole, Debbie, Laura, Rod, and especially my constant companion, Terry. We're making space for more episodes and interviews. So if your work, research, or interests intersect with teaching and learning, both in person and online, we want to hear from you about your ideas for a new podcast episode. And send me an email at aj underscore fraser at cb.ca. I'm AJ. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.